You are listening to Word Up, a place where we share our stories because who we are matters. Thank you for joining me again here on Word Up. This week, we spend time with Yolanda Bonnell, a playwright, musician, actor, educator, and creator. But before I tell you more about our special guest, let's move to the home of the Cobras, École Secondaire Cochrane High School, and meet this week's co-hosts. Uh, sure. I'm Sage Henry Belair. I'm a high school student in Cochrane, and for a long time I've taken an interest in journalism and learning from other people, so I'm really excited to be a part of this, and thanks for having me. Congrats. And, uh, I, hi, I'm uh, Shay Henderson. I'm a, I'm a teacher here in Cochrane as well at the high school, and uh, I've been here for the last seven years, and before that I, I got my start in teaching in some of the flying communities up north in uh, northwestern Ontario. Um, and yeah, I, I'm super honored to be part of this. I, I always love the opportunity to discuss things because I, I have a real interest in seeing where some of the Indigenous focused education is going in our board. And, you know, they've taken it upon themselves to really, really honor that as a, as a new path for the board. And uh, uh, I want to be part of that. So, Thanks. That's great. Thank you, and I'm Erin. Erin uh, Buckman, I'm the Indigenous coach for DSB1. I'm the non-Indigenous Indigenous coach for DSB1, and I always like to make sure I center that. I'm excited to have you guys here and to learn with you today. Um, our guest today is Yolanda Bonnell. She, her, is a queer two-spirit Ojibwe South Asian performer, playwright, and poet from Fort William First Nation in Thunder Bay, Ontario. She's now based in Toronto and a graduate of Humber College's Theatre Performance Program. Yolanda was named one of Now Magazine's Theatre Discoveries and Most Exciting Artists in SummerWorks 2016. Her solo show, Bug, had its world premiere at the Luminato Festival in 2018, followed by a national tour and will be part of the 2020 season at Theatre Pass Muraille. Yolanda also completed a season at the Stratford Festival as well as residency at the Banff Playwrights Lab with her piece, White Girls and Moccasins, which is now in residency at Buddies and Bad Times Theatre. Yolanda is dedicated to giving Indigenous women a voice. Her work explores many of the systemic issues and impacts of prejudice and racism that she has faced throughout her life, but her story is also one of hope. So welcome, Yolanda. Thank you for having me. We're happy to have you here. Um, We have a bunch of different questions for you, but feel free to go off track or add in your own thing. Um, I always like to start with our students first. So, Sage, I'll turn it over to you if you want to ask a few questions. All right. Uh, so, in a lot of your pieces, you prominently end up featuring lots of Indigenous creators and actors, including yourself. So, when it came to writing and acting, which came first for you? That's so tricky. Because, like, I think back, like, I, I honestly, whenever I get asked this question, I think back to, like, when I was a child. I, I have to say I think it's writing because... I was seven years old because I was in second grade uh, when I wrote my first poem, and it was called Freedom. Uh, It was because we had read this book on the Underground Railroad, um, and so it was my first introduction to slavery uh, and the injustices that a lot of Black folks um, experience, Uh, and that was appalling to me as a seven-year-old, so I decided to write a poem about it, and then then it just kind of kept growing from there, writing short stories and songs and... um, but I I did start acting uh, in quite young and and I started performing in high school. The older I got, the more acting took precedence. So I did community theater for about five years when I was living in 
Thunder Bay. So I'm originally from Fort Wayne First Nation, which is uh, Superior Robinson Treaty Territory. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I did community theater for about five years in my 20s. Uh, I struggled with a lot of mental health issues, so I, there was a long period of time where I wasn't doing anything. Um, I was doing some writing, but it was mostly cathartic writing to sort of help me through. Um, uh, but when I started acting again, it really helped me focus. So uh, I did that for about five years and then decided to move to Toronto to pursue it. Um, and at the end of my theater school, so I went to theater school and I was there for three years. And at the end, the last project that we had to do, we had to write a solo show and I've been writing my entire life. And, uh, it was something I was good at and I loved, uh, but I never allowed that skill to shine through when I was in school. I don't know why I kept it hidden. It was a weird thing that I did, uh, until third year when I wrote bug, um, and then that sort of exploded out of me and it opened me up and I started my reclamation journey, which also helped. And then I started really like uh, allowing those stories to come through. So I don't know if that answered the question. That's good. That's good. Uh, so in that answer, you mentioned having struggled with uh, mental health issues. Do you and a lot of younger people, especially right now and within our school and our school board, are struggling with those sort of things. So what kind of advice would you give to anyone listening on dealing with that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm really open about my struggles with mental health because, because I know so many people struggle with it um, on very varying degrees for varying reasons. Um, I think indigenous people, you know, particularly have, that layer of intergenerational trauma and it's it's difficult living in a country that is founded on wanting you dead like that's a really hard thing to know wake up every day and intrinsically understand right and i think that the youth understand that we see that with like the suicide crises up north right like they see it they can physically see the like the country turning their it's back on them and, and their leaders turning, turning its back on them. And so it's, it's going to be a struggle. Uh, my, I think my advice would, would be to lean into teachings and culture, understand that it's not about like getting over it, that it's about going through it. It's hard to see the end sometimes, but that, the going through it is where you you learn the most about yourself and then you learn how to work with it and negotiate with it. It through a lot of twists and turns in my life have learned how to manipulate my mental health. My like now I understand, right? Like so when my brain tells me something, I understand that 90% of what it's telling me is a lie or that it's coming from an external source, especially if it's that bad, that negative self-talk, that that voice that comes in. Um, when you understand that those are trauma responses, it, the easier it is to let go um, and not even let go, but learn how to work with it. Uh, so yeah, I think that for me, I find that like when I'm like engaged with my medicine, uh, it helps me sort of um, calm that voice uh, and work with it in a different way. Thank you. Yeah. Do you find in your writing and your acting, because you're dealing with so many of those um, 
those issues that you faced with your mental health, you're dealing with violence, you're dealing with some, some systemic issues as well. Do you find that healing for you or, or is it re-traumatizing? It can be. I think that it's, there's, so there's this, I, I, I try really hard not to do what we call confessional theater or autobiographical theater. I do want to tell my stories and my truth and, and my experiences are, some of my experiences are, are the impacts of it are universal. Uh, so I, I, I find that telling my stories helps, right? Um, but it's about the weaving of it. For me, I do find healing in the, in the getting out uh, and the weaving of the story so that it's, it's, I change enough of it so that it doesn't feel like it's me and I am re-traumatizing myself, that I'm pulling these stories out and then I'm like, creating this character that just so happens to have the same experiences that I do. Right. And so when you externalize it, it's easier to sort of, you know, it's, it doesn't feel so raw. It doesn't feel like I'm reenacting my trauma on stage or that I'm like, it can be hard. It's going to be emotional whenever you're writing something that is so personal and like hard and, and that does deal with trauma. Um, you know, it's that thing about getting to the healing. It's the going through to get to the other side. So similarly with writing, it works that way too. I, I do have to sort of go through, you know, some shedding to get it out. So, so that might look emotional on, on, in different ways. Um, but, but I also understand that if I'm about to tell a story or sit down and write a section of a, of a story that might be particularly hard for me, that I prepare myself uh, by having medicine present, things myself prepped in the space so that it's not, um, so that I'm. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I'm coming from a different perspective, I guess, as well. So teaching at the high school level um, and our board has piloted uh, a, a course uh, focused on expressing Indigenous voices uh, through literature, which I think is, is, is fantastic. Uh, but me, a non-Indigenous person, uh, teaching this course, I, I struggle. Um, and I think similar in many ways that Aaron alluded to at the beginning, the, the non-Indigenous, Indigenous coach, it's, it's that um, feeling of not doing justice or find, like navigating how to make sure I'm doing justice to the content and, and respecting the, the culture, the heritage, the history, respecting everything that's happened in the past and respecting the, the, the positives and also the negatives, like the positives of the culture and the class and the traditions, but also realizing that there was a lot of injustice done while also celebrating, you know, what there is for the future, right? And uh, you know, I've, I've had students say, like, all we ever learn about is residential schools, which is important, but they want to learn, like, Indigenous students want to learn about how they can celebrate themselves and their culture and find their identity. And I, I think they're connected, but as a, as a person that's learning along the way, mm. uh, like how would you suggest navigating that? That's a loaded question. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, we're not giving you easy questions, Yolanda. No, that was what I loved when I read the questions. I was like, these are amazing questions. Um, <laughs> It's complicated and it's complex because all of those things are true at once, right? Like, as as Indigenous people, we have endured m massive loads of ravaging trauma from colonization and the ongoing effects of it and systemic racism. We have survived that. And there's lots to celebrate. Uh, and we've 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 been able to carry our ceremonies forward we've been able to carry um aspects of our culture uh i spoke with an elder recently who said you know we 
we grabbed our bundle, like we, 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 we took our bundle with us, um, which included as much as we could carry at that time. Right. And this is sort of what, um, my play white girls and moccasins talks about is that like what we took with us and like how we, when we feel displaced from our culture, um, what are the, all those truths that we're holding? Um, and so as students can see why they would be longing for more cultural content that, that, that celebrates joy and, and love and, um, and laughter and, uh, and healing because we have to tell the truth and the truth has to be told and, and, and Canada needs to know what's going on, what went on, what's going on, what continues to happen. Um, and the many different ways that it happens and the nuances of it, because it can be so small and it can be so big, right? But the, even the smallest has the biggest impact. When you look at like microaggressions and things like that, they have wide impacts, but it's a small thing. Um, so those are all things that we're, that we're all holding, settler and Indigenous, at, at the same time. As a teacher, to navigate that truth is, I can imagine, being is difficult. I think that the first step to acknowledge privilege and acknowledge um, the not knowing and acknowledging that there should always be Indigenous people being the ones to, to teach these things and, and to tell, things, tell these things, but we also understand that that's not always possible. Um, so then, then it becomes, yes, the question of like, how do we move forward while engaging with this information? I think... If you if there's a way to have them engaged with elders, I think that's a good step. Like bringing in people or ha- or connecting them with people that have roots or have access to ceremony. Uh, ceremony is a big part, and ceremony doesn't always have to look like powwows. Like ceremony. Um, can be talking circles, right? Like in, in some ways, what we're doing right now is ceremony. Um, that ceremony looks like so many different things. But by, I think by connecting them with different, a variety of Indigenous people, because that's the thing, like it's one thing to be removed from your culture and then to be removed from uh, the different types of Indigenous people there are. And when you don't know that there are so many different types of Indigenous people, it you tend to sort of start to think, I must not be Indigenous enough, or maybe I'm not, you know, this or not that. So I think by exposing those, these students to, yes, the truth, there's more than just residential schools that happen. But yeah, I think balancing the, the truth that, that of history and the ongoing effects and exposing to Indigenous artists, Indigenous um healers, elders, um, anybody that you can bring in uh, so that they can have, and and everybody can get exposed to it, not just the Indigenous students, because it's important that we all learn. We are more than our traumas and we are more than our our pain. Um, that, That laughter is one of our biggest medicines and if you know native people you you know you know (laughs) like and 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 that there are ways that we can talk about that with bringing in a different people um that's so true i just i find that humor for students and teachers who are coming who haven't 
haven't been exposed to that culture. Uh, and even in books that they're reading right now with the new MBE course, that humor piece in the midst of trauma is very jarring. And I've had mm-hmm. several teachers and several students say, you know, it just doesn't feel right. I, I didn't realize how cultural it was until this year when we really started to look at the, the new Indigenous uh, Voices course. Yeah, it's so it's so important. I'm I'm developing a play right now called My Sister's Rage, and the whole idea about it is 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 that laughter is medicine and that laughter is healing. So a lot of your works is based around Indigenous culture and life and your experiences as an Indigenous person, and I'm just wondering: was any of that inspired by works from other Indigenous peoples, or just works in general? What inspired the way you write and you perform? I have been inspired by many people in my life. Um, The more, the older I got and the more I read and the more I was exposed to different types of people that influenced my writing quite a bit. Um, For the work that I've been doing the last like five years, I try to be an open channel so that I'm allowing um, energy to come through and voices to come through and I'm allowing and I intentionally invite my ancestors into my process um, and this is because I, I do believe like we as humans are intrinsically connected to the land which is connected to the energy of our ancestors uh, and so I think that a lot of my that some of the voices in my stories come from that place. Sometimes I feel like I just I speak the words and they come from someone else. It's a very strange thing. But I, I also have been very inspired by the Indigenous matriarchs that have sort of made the way so that I could tell, so that I can tell the stories I am now. I draw a lot of inspiration from experiences that I've had growing up and the experiences of my family and uh, and things that I've witnessed and things that I was a part of um, and have happened to me. Uh, but like I said earlier, I spin them in a way where it's safe, so... So I'm never like off my center. Um, I don't know if I don't know if I would have gotten this far without a matriarch sort of blazing that way. Just wanted to go from like Sage's question about inspiration to like carving out into d- d- defining your own identity. Like, so how how did one lead to the other? Because I, I think identity plays a big role uh, in and what, what you produce and like how you carry yourself in your profession. Um, so you know, how, how did you, you know, how, going from those inspirational people in your life to you know you becoming probably an inspiration to many people? Uh, yeah, how, how do you you know how did you come to terms with that, or how did you define that? I feel like they happened at the same time or like were slowly happening and I didn't know that they were happening at the same time. But there was something that happened when I entered the industry and I sort of looked around and was like, this is not safe. Um, <laughs> uh, for the first three years that I was in it, it I mean, everything happened so fast. Everything happened so fast. I graduated and within that year I was produced and performing so quickly Um that I felt I felt a little catapulted into the industry and and wasn't fully prepared for what was happening. Um, but what I noticed right away uh, was that it wasn't sustainable for anybody. And then to see how BIPOC artists were being treated, especially 
um, and then experiencing acts of racial violence within institutions over and over again was really hard. When I started working with Cole Alvis, who is my co-artistic partner for with Managing's Collective, it's a the collective that we started together for Bug. Um, we actually had a way of working that gave space for decolonial practice. Whenever I was in space with Cole or like other specific certain indigenous artists versus being in institutional spaces, they were so different in how I felt cared for and how space was being held. It just felt like every time I entered a room, I had to fight so hard. Um, when I was at Stratford, I had to fight. Like I had to fight to get talking circles. We had to fight for to smudge. We had to fight... Uh, to get a land acknowledgement played when they were like, oh, but we're going to play O Canada. And I'm like, mm. so I created my own spaces <laughs> because I was, I'm done. I'm, I just couldn't, you know, do it anymore. And so, and it turns out that like, I guess I, I worked hard enough where people are like, yes, we will give you those things. <laughs> um, but not everybody has that ability. And so I, and what we do at Manadunes and what I do in my own practice is try to always create space, um, a safe space, that safety and care is the baseline and not a radical act when it comes to theater and storytelling. Because really at the base of it, we should be focused on the storytelling. Uh, and when we're wrapped up in ourselves, that's when harm happens. But when we equalize it, we come down, we forget, drop the hierarchy we know it exists, but that whatever we can do to, to spread that energy out and keep each other safe and hold each other um, and move forward in a way where it's more sustainable. And now is a great time to decolonize it and to dismantle these systems and then try to find ways of building them back up so safely so that we're all safe. And so that's sort of how I, once I started doing that work and the more I started learning about that, about how to hold space and uh, and bringing in my ideals and not being scared to bring in my to bring my voice in, uh, because at this point, you know, people need institutions need people like me. Institutions need the voice, the BIPOC voices that are strong and that are not scared to say something. So it sort of it all sort of happened kind of at the same time and I kind of grew into it like as I was being influenced and watching other people do their work and um I sort of was like that works for me but that doesn't work so how do we make this work as you're talking it made me think a lot about um bug in in your performances asked that non-indigenous critics um not review um, and to only have Indigenous or, or uh, people of colour review your performance. Did you get a lot of negative backlash for that? Because I thought that was so brave for you to, you to be so public about that. Thank you. Um, I did get a lot of backlash. Backlash is like the nicest word. I did an interview. It was so the decision was made by the collective, and the and the theater agreed to it. Um, and so we put out the statement, and then I did an interview on CBCQ uh, with Tom Power because uh, the media reacted to it. <laughs> they had a reaction. I didn't know they were going to react the way they did. I honestly was like, like, yeah, let's make space for BIPOC voices. What's so I don't understand. Like I even now I'm still like I don't understand why it's such a big deal. But they 
had a feeling. They felt some kind of way about it. Uh, and so I was invited onto the radio to talk about it. And I did. Uh, and I came home and there was like two tweets from people who were like, you're a racist. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> lady, like, let's not, <laughs> I don't think you understand what that word means. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so that, and that was cute and funny. And I was like, oh my God, I have haters. And, uh, and then I went, <laughs> and then about two hours later, it was like, it exploded, it exploded and it went viral. And suddenly I had hundreds and hundreds of people calling me racist, um, body shaming me, um, making fun of my identity, my two-spirit identity, any, literally anything they could attack me for, they attacked me for it. I started getting death threats. Um, I had people emailing me from, uh, the States, uh, for, I had, I had articles written about it in, in Dutch, in French, in Spain, there was an article about it. In Australia, there was an article about it. The Guardian in the UK did an article about, like, I kept doing these interviews and then at some point I had to stop because it, um, because it, because every time there was a new article, there would be more comments. And so it just kept perpetuating as much as it was like getting the message out there. It was also perpetuating the hate that I was getting. Um, and, uh, it was a lot. It was a lot. I was performing at the same time. And so the story that I wrote with bug, there was a natural kind of healing journey in it. And so it kind of felt like I was healing myself every night. Uh, and I'd wake up and I'd read comments, even though I tried not to, it's really hard not to, uh, I tried, uh, and I would sleep all day because I was depressed and then I would do the show and then I would come back feeling great. And then it would cycle again. So that went on for a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, yeah, it was tough. Yeah, I can't imagine. When I was uh, when I was reading about it, I was just uh, yeah, really proud of proud of you for making that statement and for being so vocal about it. So, have you reached a point where you feel that what you're doing has had an impact that you're proud of? Yeah, yeah, yes. I think that the simple answer is yes. I, yeah, I, I am really proud of my work. Um, and especially being like a kid from the res and being told that, you know, I would never get to this point. Um, I'm, I'm a high school dropout. I didn't graduate high school. I struggled a lot. And so to be where I'm at right now and to be doing the work that I am right now to have to be, to see impact like that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my work. You really um, bring a sense of real hope that's not cheesy. Um, and for a lot of our kids, that's what they're used to, right? And they're used to hearing, you know, you can do it, you can do it. And I think to hear from somebody like, yeah, I screwed up. Like I, I made lots of choices that I regret and lots of things didn't work out for me, but I, I picked myself up. You really, and, and everything you say and do, you demonstrate that resilience and that grit, I mean, as just hearing the the last few questions and comments, like it's it's like rattling my brain. Like it's it's just like oh, it, it's so it makes so much sense, right? You know, I, I sit in this job, and you can define this teaching job in many different ways, but really, like just to create a platform for students. Um, I, I think just hearing you speak the way that you like, there's no beating around the bush. There's none of that. It's like here it is, and and 
making sure that you are the individual that's carving out the path and creating a platform for other people. Right. And like, so really you, you know, I don't know, you, I don't know if you call yourself an educator or, but you should, or you should call yourself many other hats because you should, um, because you, what you're doing is you know, you're, you're creating a space for people uh, of all different ages and all different walks of life to, to explore that um, those opportunities. So hearing you speak about that, the, the steps you had to take to get there says like, yeah, it takes up a, a hell of a lot of work, but like it, 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 you know, it pays off and, you know, you need those people that are willing to take those leaps and bounds forward. Um, what's lacking is the, the realism, the real that there is crap in this world that some people try to avoid or ignore or brush over. Uh, and I think when people start to realize like, nope, that exists. And like, now how do we move forward from that? And how do we it's like not, not, not ignore it, incorporate it and then grow from it. That's, that's the, that's the, I think, a big key piece and people determining their identity, whatever, whatever walk of life they're on. Yeah. Miigwech for, for all of that. Like everywhere I go, I start with a check-in. How are you doing? Where are you at? What are you bringing into the space? So then we all know how to be with each other. Because really at the end of the day, we, we're all just trying to be with each other. And how do we create that space where it's safe enough to feel vulnerable and, and, um, and be where we're at. I'm in my bed right now, man. Oh, that's awesome. I'm coming from you from my bed. That's my sleep mask. Yo, <laughs> like, that's where I'm at, you know? Oh, I love it. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a pretty beautiful way for us to, to end the conversation is really, I mean, we're in this pandemic, we can't be together and how are we creating spaces so that we can still feel those connections. Um, So thank you for reminding us of that. Before I sign off every podcast, we do the fast five where I don't give you the questions ahead of time. You've just got to spit out whatever answer comes to your brain. That's what I do anyway. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So fast five speed round. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? To fly. Okay. Uh, what's what's a musician or a band that we should all be listening to this weekend? SZA. Uh, who's somebody we should follow on Twitter? Kim Sinclair Harvey. Um, it, dead or alive, any person uh, that you could grab a coffee with, who would it be? Eartha Kitt. <laughs> nice. What one thing you do for yourself uh, for renewal to renew your spirit? I drink lemon water every day. I start my day with lemon water and I continue. It's good for your system. (laughs) (laughs) It flushes flushes toxins. It gives you good breath. It's it's vitamin C. Lemon water. I love it. <laughs> Lemon water. We better breath than coffee breath that I probably have. So. Yeah, I, I drink that and then I drink my coffee and then I go back to that. So, <laughs> bookend. You realize how bad your breath smells when you have to wear a mask all day? Because so. <laughs> people aren't brushing the backs of their tongues. You got to brush the back of your tongue. That's where, that's where all that smell's coming from. I learned that from a dental hygienist. Really? That I used to work with at McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the back of my tongue. All yeah. Right. Uh, all the way back there. <laughs> Things we learned right, Paige? Did you know today that you would be learning all this? <laughs> I could learn, but not that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I hope you enjoyed learning from and with Yolanda. Huge thanks to Sage and Shay for helping me with this interview. On the next episode, we will share stories with the award-winning artist Stan Lutet from the band Midnight Shine. Until then, fists down and word up. Truth be key to freedom and bondage.